0: And I, I just wanted you to know that uh, me hiring in a female associate producer to help you meet girls is not the textbook definition of affirmative action. Ass. The following podcast contains...
2: You cannot say filth, flyin' filth, flyin' filth in front of people.
0: Explicit Language. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you made General So your ambassador to China, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is a Friday, August 11th, 2017. I'm the very model of a major modern general edition of the show, where we talk about the soft military coup that's taken over the government, and why that was a really good idea. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by General Amos T. Halftrack, political consulting. Are you seeking to understand the complex and demanding world of international affairs? General Amos T. Half-Track brings decades of leadership and experience to your political team. Whether on the golf course or the Officers Club, General Halftrack knows his way around the issues and around a desk, if you know what we're saying. It's his way of dealing with the sexual harassment complaints. No issue is too big or too small for General Halftrack. From Vietnam to the Soviet Union's to the Falkland War that just happened, Amos knows the world. Call now and get a free analysis of President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative.
2: And if you want to talk about your oath of office, I'm here to tell you face-to-face, President Lyman, that you violated that oath when you stripped this country of its muscles, when you deliberately played upon the fear and fatigue of the people and told them they could remove that fear by the stroke of a pen. And then when this nation rejected you, lost its faith in you, and began militantly to oppose you, You violated that oath by simply not resigning from office and turning this country over to someone who could represent the people of the United States. And that would be General James Mattoon Scott, wouldn't it? I don't know whether to laugh at that kind of megalomania or simply cry. James Mattoon Scott, as you put it, hasn't the slightest interest in his own glorification. But he does have an abiding concern about the survival of this country. Then by God, run for office! You have such a fervent, passionate... Evangelical affection for your country. Why, in the name of God, don't you have any faith in the system of government you're so hell-bent to protect? You say I've duped the people, General. I've built them. I've misled them. I've stripped them naked and made them defenseless. You accuse me of having lost their faith and deliberately and criminally shut my ears to the national voice. I do. Well, where the hell have you heard that voice, General? In freight elevators? In dark alleys? In secret places in the dead of night? How did that voice seep into a locked room full of conspirators? That's not where you hear the voice of the people, General, not in this republic. You wanna defend the United States of America, then defend it with the tools it supplies you with, its constitution. You ask for a mandate, General, from a ballot box. You don't steal it after midnight when the country has its back turned.
0: It's August, the dog days of summer. Traditionally a time when the government gets the fuck out of Washington, D.C. for one very simple reason, DC during the best part of summer is a sweaty asshole. During August, it's the sweaty asshole of a morbidly obese person who needs that stick to scrub out their taint and they've lost their stick. I can't get that image out of my mind! <laughs> yeah, think about the smell. I lived in DC for six years. I'm still sweating and I've been gone for 13. Congress is in recess meaning they, they're not formally in recess because if they were, the White House could get all sorts of, get up to all sorts of things, and the tangerine Twitler is on a working vacation at one of his golf courses in New Jersey. Normally, August is a long, quiet month for the news. Reporters take their vacations, and the headlines usually turn to pop culture or local news. But, like with so many other things, the new administration has shattered the old way of doing things.
2: They will be met with fire fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. We're totally going to have a nuclear war with North Korea, so you can, uh, you can cancel your beach plans. No, <laughs> oh, shit, cancel Christmas. Probably the next couple of Christmases as well. <laughs> North Korea responded to Donnie's threats with some detailed musings about nuking Guam can only imagine poor guam they're going about their business of life in the sun lounging on beaches and kicking it with the Tao Tao mona i won an award for giving a speech about the Tao Tao mona my freshman year of high school on guam so i know what the talk I'm, I'm, i'm talking about but then they find themselves suddenly trending on twitter for like the worst possible things ever i mean it is so much worse than your llamas have escaped but you have to respect the guamanians who Just cruising along Island style, and they're not freaking out. You have to have lived there to understand, Guamanians don't sweat shit. They're treating Trump and Kim the same way they treat everything else. A smile, a shrug, and keep on keeping on. Maybe the typhoon comes, maybe it don't. It's just another day on the island. Half a day, Brown. I I don't know if they still say Brown. It's been like 30 years since I lived there. So while Guam and the rest of the world is very concerned the president of the United States just threatened an unstable nuclear-armed dictator with an 80s action movie cliché, they shouldn't be worried, because the president is probably not in control of the nuclear weapons because his three generals are essentially in control of the United States government. Oh, right, that's a bad thing. Uh, maybe. Let's roll back from the precipice and talk about those three dudes that are... Probably in control of the nation right now, Secretary of Defense and retired four-star General James Mattis, National Security Advisor General three-star H.R. McMaster, and retired General four-star John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff. These three positions, along with the Secretary of State, um, uh, what's his name, I, I don't know, uh, are probably the most powerful non-elected positions in our government, and between them, control the levers of power in a very literal sense. The troika of generals running the nation at the moment would probably not ever admit they are in charge of the nation, but between them, they're certainly communicating that they are de facto running the joint to our allies because that's the only thing keeping the world from imploding. They have to do this for two reasons. The first is the president of the United States is an incredibly unqualified idiot man-child who was as like to nuke Los Angeles as in a fit of pique as he is to tweet about nuking Los Angeles in a fit of pique. The second is that if they were to admit they were in charge, they've effectively overthrown the lawfully elected government of the United States, which is, uh, kinda something they spent their whole lives preventing from happening.
1: I trust the irony of that is not lost on any of us.
0: In any other context, it would probably be funny three generals subverting the government to save the government from themselves. And besides, they're, they're only technically subverting it anyway. But uh, let's talk about these three generals. They're all uh, ground pounder generals, meaning they're army and marines, meaning they are not so quick to rely on some technological marvel to save their asses. Every grunt knows the whiz-bang thing the brass spent a lot of money on is the first fucking thing to break when the shit hits the fan. I mean, I was in the Air Force, true, but I was an Air Force grunt. And let me tell you, you get really inventive when you know that the shit you have is going to break. You have a certain practicality. All three of them are post-Cold War generals. They came up in the ranks during a time when the U.S. was the sole superpower. The wars were smaller. The stakes were lower than the end of the world. And their general outlook, no pun intended, reflects this reality. A Cold War general measured everything against fighting the Russians. A post-Cold War general measures everything about fighting small powers in austere places. And finally, they're each incredibly well-educated. Mattis has a master's from the War College, though as personal education through books and reading is much broader and much deeper mcmasters has a phd in american history and kelly has a master's in foreign affairs from my alma mater of georgetown each of the three are considered largely apolitical although kelly not so much and each has a sterling reputation for integrity professionalism and honor in short they're exactly the kind of people you would want to be running the government in a crisis so why am I sitting here, mug of whiskey in my hands, Gavin in the booth and the world imploding around us, talking to you about them? Well, as a rule, we've Americans have eschewed the idea of military dictatorships. I mean, even a well-meaning dictator is still a dictator pod, friends. Not that I'm suggesting these men are in any way dictators or actually breaking the law. My tremendous jokes aside... What I'm saying is that any one of the three, if they were less honorable, they would be in an incredible position to stage a military coup and get away with it. Jesus fucking Christ, man. The idea of civilian control of the military is baked right into the DNA of the Constitution. It allocates the power to raise and fund the armed forces to the Congress and the direct command of those armed forces to the president. Several of the founders felt that we shouldn't even have a standing army, but we could just call up the local militias at need. The framers who had actually fought in the war disabused them of the notion as gently as possible, saying that militias were...
2: Useless as a pecker on a pope.
0: More than that, they were deeply suspicious of the military being used to run a civilian government, as the British had largely relegated civil functions to the army whenever it was convenient. But, you know... They were Americans, so they had a hard-on for guys in uniform. I mean, George fucking Washington was the general! Not the insurance guy, I mean the actual general. Though there wasn't any competition for our first president. And since then, we've loved putting generals in the Oval. In addition to Washington... Monroe, Jackson, Harrison 1, Tyler, Taylor, Pierce, Lincoln, Johnson 1, Grant, Hayes, Garfield, Arthur, Harrison 2, McKinley, Roosevelt 1, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson 2, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan-ish, Bush 1 and 2 were at least veterans, and... Washington, Jackson, Harrison, Taylor, Pierce Johnson, Grant, Hayes, Garfield Harrison 2, Roosevelt 1 and Eisenhower were actual fucking generals so it's not like it's uncommon for a military man to be in charge of the country but was it a good idea to have generals running the country? Well to answer that we gotta go to the way back The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast way back this week is sponsored by Harry's Razors. When I'm a Civil War general, I know that my facial hair defines me. That's why I use a Harry's Razor. Harry's Razors are German-made and guaranteed to produce the most comfortable and smooth shave you've ever tried. Harry's isn't actually sponsoring the show this week. I'm just pitching the show to a network and I want to show that I I can put ads in the show. All right, back to the real show. October of 1962, and the world was on the brink of World War III. I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean, fingers were literally hovering above the metaphorical red buttons on both sides of the Cold War because a small island 90 miles off the coast of Florida, which five years prior was best known for mobster-owned casinos and Cuba Libres, which are actually just rum and cokes?
2: Regarding the rum and coke issue. Couldn't be more confused.
0: Now, most folks think the showdown was between the United States and the Soviet Union, them being the ones with the missiles pointed at each other. But the scariest monsters that Halloween se- season were the generals advising President Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was not a military mastermind. For all he'd served bravely, and even honorably, and wounded in combat during World War II. By all standards, He should never have worn a fucking uniform in the first place. He was medically disqualified from the service due to a bad back. But Papa Joe Kennedy knew that a political career needed the check mark of serving in a war, if there was one, and bought Jack's commission in the Navy. That crass act of political hackery probably saved the world. ...because it gave JFK a rather jaded view of the top brass of the military. He came out of his service with the view that the generals seemed to want to kill people... ...and a lot of the times the the people they wanted to kill were the same uniform they did. After the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy's respect for the Pentagon was, uh, not good... He referred to them as those sons of bitches with all the fruit salad, deferring to the rows of medals that they wore on their chest. Needless to say, the military was not particularly impressed by Jack Kennedy either. The top brass of the Pentagon regarded JFK as a millionaire playboy who played soldier for a few weeks, but with no understanding of the modern theater of war. Modern theater of war, by the way, was codenamed for nuclear war. The Joint Chiefs thought of Kennedy as weak and felt it was their solemn duty to defend the country. In the words of Air Force General Power, which is not a joke, why are you so considered with saving their lives? The whole idea is to kill the bastards. At the end of the war, if there are two Americans and one Russian, we win. General Power, and General Curtis LeMay, by the way, were the primary sources of inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. Speaking of General LeMay and Dr. Strangelove, LeMay, who was the commander of the Air Force, the chief of staff of the Air Force, was one of the most vigorous generals advocating the strategy of fuck it, let's nuke the bastards. General Curtis Iron Pants LeMay, the guy who promulgated the strategy of bombing Japan way back beyond the Stone Age, and and was the commander who dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was kind of a unique individual and had some opinions on how the Cuban Missile Crisis should be prosecuted. Oh, as for the Berlin
1: situation, uh, I don't share your view that uh, if we knock off Cuba, they're going to knock off Berlin. Uh, so we've got the Berlin problem, there in anyway. If we don't do anything to Cuba, then they're going to push on Berlin and push real hard because they got us on the run. Uh, if we take military action against Cuba, then. Uh, I think going to reply. would be. Uh, I don't think they're going to make a reply. Don't we tell them, if the Berlin situation is just like it's always been, if they make a move, we're going to fight. Uh, I don't think it changes the Berlin situation at all, except we've got to make one more statement on it. So I see no other solution.
0: LeMay and the rest of the Joint Chiefs adamantly insisted that Kennedy invade Cuba over the missiles. Anything less would never work. When Kennedy countered with a rather rational objection that Russia would respond by invading West Germany, the Joint Chiefs of Staff agreed and implied that war was going to come anyway. We might as well get it over and done with now, rather than fucking around for weeks and letting the missile in Cuba be ready for use. To be clear, the position of the generals was this, let's kill them all and let God sort them out which from a military perspective makes perfect sense. Even General Mattis has a version of this philosophy when he said, be polite, be professional, and have a plan to kill everyone you meet. Because killing people is a military business, and the U.S. military then, as in now, is very good at their jobs. From the chief's perspective, the risk of not nuking the shit out of the Russians, would be that the Russians nuke the shit out of us, and we might not be able to effective in counter-nuking them. Sure, we would destroy the world, but the Russians would destroy an infinitesimal percentage more of the world than we did, and that... This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. Kennedy could not and did not outright deny the generals their plan for destroying life on Earth to prove their point. Bombers were in the air, missiles were fueled, and the world stood quietly on the brink of Armageddon. Defense Condition, or DEFCON 2, was enacted for the first and hopefully only time in history. For reference, that's 15 minutes away from literal, end-of-the-world, biblical shit. But Kennedy... Was the final arbiter on when nuclear weapons could be deployed. A power that Kennedy did not fully completely have because theater commanders still had tactical nuclear weapons at their discretion and would not have the president would not have that power fully in place until the end of the Johnson administration. But the strategic weapons were under civilian control and strategic meant Kennedy. In the end, since we're all still here, Kennedy's cautious approach won out much to the rage of the generals. Kennedy said of the affair, quote, these brass hats have one great advantage. If we do what they want us to do, none of us will be alive later to tell them they were wrong, unquote. And while LeMay characterized the success of the de-escalation of the Cuban Missile Crisis as, quote, the greatest defeat in our history, unquote. Why did the generals simply not ignore the president they thought was incompetent and dangerously wrong on how to deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Why did they not simply oust the president they legitimately felt was a threat to national security and placing the lives of hundreds of millions of Americans at risk by enacting a military coup? Well, they all believed fully and completely that even if the president was wrong, it would be more wrong to break the Constitution and overthrow the government at a coup. But hey, if they if the nukes did fly, they, the generals, would be in a nice bunker somewhere with a good scotch and all the hookers they could fly in on their command and control planes right before the end of the world. It's
2: a win-win situation.
0: Yeah, feels it. As I said before, any one of the three generals that we're talking about now, Mattis, McMaster and Kelly, could stage a coup as easy as me downing a shot of Jameson's. Oh, sure. There'd be some grumbling from the far left and far right, but most of us would be relieved to see any one of these three in charge. Fuck, some of us who remain remain nameless actually have a chart showing how many people would have to die to make Mattis president. Some of us who remain nameless chant it like Arya's List. Mike Pence, Paul Ryan, Orrin Hatch, Rex Tillerson, The Hound, Coups don't happen because strong, competent leaders are in power. They happen when weak, stupid, and fearful people are in power. The weak surround themselves with strong people because they believe that strong people will keep outsiders from noticing every time they tweet to demonstrate their fear and ignorance. In a system without strong constitutional checks on power, you know... When like a single party is in control of the government and refuses to enforce laws and norms on the executive because it's politically convenient to have a weak, stupid member of their party in place, no matter how corrupt or damaging it is to the country. You know, that kind of thing. If that were to happen, if a person with real power, the respect of the military, and, and, and the will to use it could easily end two and a half centuries of democracy, and we as Americans would probably thank them for it. Do I think Mattis, McMaster and Kelly would do this or have the desire to do this? I do not. I'm thankful they're there because they represent the best of our modern military, educated, competent leaders who believe in the rule of law and doing what's best for the nation. But they are only men and at the whim of a petty child who will exhaust them out of office at best or fire them on a whim at worst. Do the men who come after them And come on, it will be men, (laughs) let's be real, measure up to these three? I don't see how they could. Do I trust the Senate to vet future candidates properly in the middle of all this other shit that's going on? I think not. And even the best generals are still steeped in what it means to be in the military. And that is obedience. General Kelly was ruthlessly efficient in DHS, rounding up immigrants for deportation, implementing the travel ban despite a chaotic man-child rollout. Of the three, Kelly's the most dangerous because he believes in some of the shit that Trump has sold. He's a thorough professional and an arch-conservative. He's the one that scares the shit out of me about having real power in the White House because he's the one that has real power in the White House. You don't need a coup when you're quietly in charge of everything. Just ask Alexander Haig about that, who was almost the way back this week. And even do I even need to mention General Flynn, who is in the center of the Russian controversy? The military is one institution in this country that for some reason people trust and approve of. Not sure exactly why. It's filled with the exact same people as all the other institutions. It's only skewed a little wider a little poorer, a little younger than all the other government agencies. I guess it must be some sort of post-Vietnam guilt syndrome. But I was in the military at the same time that these generals were starting their careers. They would have been my immediate supervisors, except, you know, I was smart and I was in the Air Force. And I tell you, the officers that I served with then were just people, not superheroes. Some were really good. Some were really bad. Most were were just adequate and that was fine. But the ones that seemed to be rising fastest, the ones on the track to get their stars shared one quality, ambition over decency. They were gonna step on whomever needed shoe prints on their head to get to where they wanted to be. And I would be willing to bet that our three generals left some boot prints on the scalps of other good and decent people along their way to the top and again, I consider these the good guys. And the problem is the doors opened by their presence and actions done in good faith may remain open to whatever asshole history lets in behind them. Maybe not now, maybe not ever, but maybe in a couple of years. Who knows who the fuck will be standing next to President Mark Zuckerberg when the balloon goes up in 10 years. It's why we put the rules there in the first place to keep the bad people out along with the good people that maybe could let the bad people in. The problem is, of course, what do you do when the bad people that you wanted to keep out by the rules of the first place were let in legally? And now they're in charge. The American system of government is designed to give and flex with the power dynamics acting upon it. Strong presidents often have weak Congresses and vice versa. But when you have a weak president and a weak Congress, the vacuum is filled by something, someone, and right now, this being filled by the military. And that should scare everyone on both sides of the aisle. We're fortunate to have a professional volunteer military steeped in a historical sense of duty to the Constitution. It's why we swear to uphold and defend the Constitution when we enlist and not the president. They are bound by their oaths, which military members take very seriously, or at least the good ones do. Shit, I still fell bound by mine, and I'm an old fat drunk with a podcast. To do only that what is which is legal, we can only hope that this, these three generals, are a unique situation requiring a unique solution to a problem that we can and will correct if the world gives us time. Because the future might not be so fortunate as to have good generals. They could just as easily have General LeMay and General Power. This, of course, assumes we have a future. As the erratic, unstable, tin-pot despot in the White House blunders around threatening nuclear war against North Korea, destabilizing the world, and putting millions at risk, the only thing between Doomsday and us are the modern major generals doing everything in their power to keep him under control. Mattis, McMaster, and Kenke- and Kelly will, I believe, preserve protect and defend the rule of law and the constitution and the people of this country to the best of their ability, even against a dotty old racist in the Oval Office. We need them where they are, doing what they do, but this is a terrifying statement on how bad things are that we need them this much. And if that doesn't frighten you, I don't know what will. I mean, I I guess we could put some clowns on the podium with Trump or something, or, or, or better yet, realize the clown less than half of the American people accidentally elected to office is in a storm drain with a nuclear football floating above his head, promising us that we will all float down there. That is it for our show this week. Fuck me. How scary is the world right now? I grew up thinking Reagan was going to get us all killed in nuclear fire, and right now I'm wishing for Reagan's cool and steady hand on the wheel. Trust me, if you'd lived, Lynn, you'd know how crazy that sounds. You know what else is crazy? Rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, which will help other people find the steady hand on the wheel of their podcast feeds that is this show. All of our navigational directions are recorded for posterity at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. A geographic record of driving directions in the form of 121 other episodes of the show is at the show name on SoundCloud and at www.whatthehellpodcast.com. Our new Patreon page is up where you can pay a dollar con- for bonus show content, including the very own voice of producer Kevin. It's patreon.com whatthehellpodcast. For me, Air Marshal Dave Bledsoe, Lieutenant Junior Grade Producer Gavin, and all the other fictional privates on this show, we want to say we are the very model of a modern major general. And we will see you all...
1: Next week, I am the very model of a crass, bombastic narcissist. We're loved by ladies even though decisively misogynist. Politically, I love to get progressist panties in a twist. Opponents feel like they've received a probe from a proctologist. I'm very well acquainted, too, with matters hypocritical. I only say what suits my goals, financial or political. Addressing crowds, my favorite topic is the wonder that is me. I hypnotize adoring throngs by spouting pure hyperbole. I'm very good at blowing smoke and clouding simple reasoning. I've learned that raging racism's an efficacious seasoning. My sycophantic followers would rather hate than think a bit of how ideas I propose are baseless economic shit. My bankruptcies have taught me how to skirt responsibility. I've learned the strength of bullshit marketing Trump University. Trump Tower's compensation for the fact that I have tiny hands, but constant self-promotions made my name one of the world's top brands. I promise voters anything despite irrationality, projecting my assertive psychopathic personality. The crowds can't get enough of my verbose theatricality despite my glaring ignorance of constitutionality. Upon the body politic I feed like a sebaceous cyst, though in my mind heroic, a courageous, bold protagonist. You disagree, you're surely an unpatriotic Bolshevist. I am the very model of a crass, bombastic narcissist.